Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 203 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I can confirm that a bulldog in a cone of shame is going to clatter a bang bash into everything. Oh, what's she done to herself? She's got a sore paw, bless her. But she's a liability. <laughs> just at whatever time in the morning, it just sounds like some evil demon is scraping along our walls. Is she trying to get it off? Frank used to try and get his off by wedging himself, sort of walking backwards along something until it caught and then trying to pull it, pull it like <laughs> down the side of the sofa and pull it off. I think she's just generally trying to move about, Hannah, rather than anything <laughs> as clever as a cat would do. Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I unexpectedly watched Eurovision at the weekend. Oh, there's so many questions this has thrown up, yeah. Why, how, what, where, when, how did you feel about it all, Hannah? How did you feel about der points? Some friends of mine sent a message to say they were just sitting in and they were going to watch it. Did they want to come around and watch it with them? And I don't think I've watched it in probably at least 10 years. Probably more than that. And that was... Like, before that, it was probably 10 years. I've probably watched it three times in my life. So I thought, yeah, that might be fun. And uh, Ukraine won. Obviously, it was a sentimental vote from the rest of Europe saying, like, we're with you. And I have absolutely no problem with that, even though it meant that the UK didn't win. And again, I've got no problem with that because I actually thought it was quite a shit song and that the man's mouth was terrifyingly large, like a genuinely terrifyingly large. Oh, I think Sam Ryder's got a decent set of pipes on him. I didn't like the song at all, so I have no problem that he didn't win on a number of levels. But I have to say, it did feel quite nice to see Britain get points and not feel like we were the lepers of Europe for once. I thought the Dutch woman should have won, to be honest, because she could sing and she, it wasn't massively overproduced. And she was singing in her own language, because I find when people sing in English, it becomes inaudible because they're doing it in a weird accent. And she also had her bum on the inside of her trousers. Uh, so I realise all of that is not in the spirit of Eurovision and, and betrays my lack of knowledge about it. But there you go. That's my review. I thought the Colosh Orchestra has very mighty boosh vibes. I liked their furry trousers. I liked mm. the, the breakdance solo at one yeah. point. It was yeah. amazing. It did worry me, though, because... I like that Ukraine won. I think that's that's really lovely. But isn't part of the prize that the winning country has to host Eurovision the following year? I would imagine we'll end up hosting it next year, partly because we came second. I would imagine that anything that the Tories could do to distract from the fact that they are shit, like Boris Johnson will get on board with. So, yeah, I would imagine we'll end up with it next time. Don't you usually watch it, Jen? Don't you usually go no. to a party dressed as a baguette or something? You totally did go to a costume, yeah. Once that happens, and that was really just an excuse to wear a beret. No, I don't, I, I don't give a shit about it, I'm afraid. I'm glad everyone else had a lovely time watching it. I can't say it did much for me. I wondered if you had a view on why, um, why we did all right. I mean, Ukraine gave us 12 points, which is, I, I presume, a thank you for all those all that military equipment we've given them. So, yeah, maybe we're buying votes with guns. But I also think <laughs> that as much as it might not have been your cup of tea, Spaceman is the most decent song we've put forward in fucking ages. And maybe it's not always political. Maybe it is we put forward shit songs. I mean, it could well be. We and do. apparently he's like quite quite big on TikTok and people like him. I was just distracted by, he looks a bit like Rick Wakeman and also an explosion in Glastonbury. 
And then he's got this terrifying, enormous mouth that distracted me the whole way through it. If someone asked me to draw a pagan, I'd have drawn him. Mm, yeah. He did have a terrifying mouth, so I agree with Hannah on that one. <laughs> anyway, I'm Jen Offord and I have books. Hooray, your books, right? My books. Yeah, my books. I've got a box of my books downstairs. How many years of the Robin do you have? I've, I had ten, but I gave one to my brother, which felt like the right thing to do, given that he is on the cover of it. So uh, now I have nine. That's what you get given. That's in my contract, so I'm, I'm allowed ten books. Okay. To do with books. Minus one is nine. Don't tell me you don't learn anything <laughs> listening to this podcast. Thank you, Hannah. I have nine copies of my own book downstairs, and I have spent all week posting things on social media. And the name J.R. Hartley. Uh, if anyone <laughs> can remember that, it's all very exciting. Someone got in touch with me and they were like, Jen's written a book. And I was like, I know. <laughs> like, it would be weird if I didn't know about that. <laughs> Coming up, I speak to Kayla Ellis about generalisations about what women want from relationships and Spreadsheet, her new sitcom starring Catherine Parkinson, which starts tonight on Channel 4. I chat with Paula Garfield, artistic director of Definitely Theatre, about celebrating the company's 20th year. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm looking ahead to the French Open. And in Rated or Dated, prepare to quite literally have your head blown off by Javier Bardem as we watch No Country for Old Men. I think he won an award for this. But first, chat shit, get banged. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. <laughs> Pew Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Oh, sorry, Jen. I just need to make another coffee. Uh... <laughs> Right, welcome to the book. Oh, actually, I could do with a bit of cheese. Do you want a bit of cheese? Oh, a bit of cheese. Mm. Oh, God, yeah, that's tasty. Right, where was I? Oh, fuck, never mind. Perils are working from home, innit? He looks like that's how he works, though. <laughs> he does look like that is how he conducts himself in a professional context. Indeed, and if you've been too busy hiding in a fridge to, to read about this, this is... Our Prime Minister Boris Johnson absolutely demeaning all of the people who have managed to do some sort of levelling up by being able to work from home. To directly quote our Hannah, what the sweaty fuck is he on about? Also, he works from home. Famously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's not look too closely at what's happening to the country, Jen. Oh, actually, go on. Let's look at what's happening to the country, Jen. Well, Mick, another week, another... Tory's going to Tory. <laughs> and so, to the predictable but nonetheless depressing news that a desperate government with no authority, no ideas and no fucking hope has reached into its back catalogue of Daily Mail crowd-pleasers in a bid to steady the sinking ship. Well, hello there, landlubbers. It's none <laughs> other than Captain Jacob Rees-Mogg, Minister for Ideological Circle Jerks, here at the Sticky Helm. Ugh. I'm sorry. Somewhere just past the white cliffs of Dover and a bombardier-soaked piece of bunting, the Victorian ghost child sailed onto our news programmes last week to defend the government's response to the cost-of-living crisis, an announcement that it would cut 91,000 civil service jobs. That is a lot of jobs, isn't it? 
it's about one in five civil servants actually and it is a lot of people to be making redundant during a cost of living crisis it's a lot of tax receipts to be waving goodbye to and it's a lot of job seekers allowances to be giving out true and hang on who is most dependent on public services so that's the jobs filled by said civil servants that's right it's the people least able to weather the stormy waters of said cost of living crisis I wonder how much it will save. The figure given by the Daily Mail is 3.75 billion, Jacob Rees-Mogg told BBC Radio 4, as if he had not actually bothered to do the research himself. Would it come as a massive surprise to you, Jen, if it was revealed Rees-Mogg actually did just get all of his information from the Daily Mail? It would not, no. no. It would not at all. I refer to this as a back catalogue because this is not the first time a Tory government has cut civil service jobs. Between 2010, when the coalition government first came to power, and 2016, by which point the Tories were in government by themselves, civil service jobs were cut by almost 20%, only to steadily rise between 2016 and the present day, where the numbers of civil service jobs are around 2% less than they were in 2009. Why did the numbers grow again so rapidly? Well, turns out Brexit was quite complicated. Uh Still, thank fuck we've sorted that out, eh, Northern Ireland? Oh, yeah. There was another story last week about an equalities impact assessment in relation to the government's policy to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, which we haven't actually talked about on the podcast yet, unbelievably, because there has been that much shit going on. My reaction is to be sick in a bin by their racist nonsense. What's yours, Jen? Yeah, it's pretty similar. The story was about how the Home Office had, and I quote, admitted that LGBTQ plus asylum seekers would be at heightened risk under those circumstances. And to respond to the news outlets that framed this as a quote unquote admission, let's be clear on what this is. What's happened here is an FOI request or a leak of standard policy documentation as part of which civil servants have done their due diligence and advised ministers of the disproportionate impacts of their policy on a minority group. Ministers and their political advisers have chosen to ignore that advice. Now this might seem like a bit of a leap, but I mention this to make the point that if anyone in Whitehall cares about you, it is actually civil servants. They are the people who are telling ministers how shit things are on the ground right now. So when the Daily Mail et al. next tries to whip you into a frenzy about pensions, ask yourself how you would feel to have your own bosses briefing the national press against you to justify its own fucking incompetence. But also, how many more of those impact assessments have been ignored? I mean, they will always find a use for a bus, won't they, Jen? If only something to throw a load of people under. My own experience of being a civil servant, obviously you listeners know that I used to be a civil servant and I stopped being a civil servant around, I think, 2013. I'll tell you a story about 2012 when London was due to host the Olympics and we received an email from up high linking right back to our story up the top telling us that we should work from home for the whole summer because they had such little confidence that their transport system could cope with the events that they had committed to staging that was the advice work from home if you can and then that story appeared in national newspapers i think the times a couple of weeks later and was framed as lazy civil servants taking the whole summer off obviously i don't know but 
you would rather think that that story had come from within the administration. And that is the shit that civil servants have been dealing with since 2010. Their own bosses briefing the press against them, trying to make people think that they're shit at their jobs and they're lazy and they're this and they're that because it will then help them to justify making them redundant. And I think I've already explained reasonably well why it's a fucking false economy to sack lots of civil servants. Now, you say that, Jen, and it all makes sense, but I do have that report from 2012 in front of me and it does quote Jen Offord saying, <laughs> I've got a lot of cheese to eat. So, mm, don't know. So, yeah, in a week where Russia's bloody and unjust invasion of Ukraine rumbles on, when a racist gunman killed 10 people in Buffalo, New York, when Home Secretary Priti Patel lifted the restrictions on police stop and search powers, and the Tories have decided just don't be poor is the best way for people <laughs> struggling to live to deal with the cost of living crisis caused mostly by, check my notes, the Tories, I felt the need for a lighter Bush Telegraph story. Hello, Agatha Christie. The trial that's <laughs> captivated the UK as Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy's social media scrapping comes crashing into the Royal Courts of Justice, with Vardy suing Rooney for libel after Rooney publicly accused her of leaking stories to The Sun back in 2019. It is a delicious cocktail of celeb culture, Premier League football, a sting operation on Instagram, misunderstood emojis, <laughs> Peter Andre's penis, and quotes such as, arguing with Colleen is like arguing with a pigeon. You can tell it that you are right and it is wrong, but it is still going to shit in your hair. Look, it is all ongoing, and this week it is Rooney's turn to be under cross-examination. Given that under English libel law, the onus is on her to prove her original accusation that Vardy was the individual leaking stories about her family to the sun. Last week, it was Vardy on the stand, and it fast became clear that a lot of key material, aka Vardy's WhatsApp history, has been <coughs> mislaid. Vardy told the court she may have potentially switched phones during the period, but can neither confirm or deny that. Make of that what you will. Rooney's lawyer, David Sherborne, I think spoke for all of us when he finished his opening remarks with the following. This whole court might just think, why on earth are we here? I mean, he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone knows the answer. But the trial continues until Wednesday. Today, if you're listening fresh, and I really am here for it. If she hadn't painted herself in such a terrible, terrible light over the course of this trial... I would feel quite sorry for Rebecca Vardy because she has had some shit advice. She has had some really, really shit advice. Mick, would you like some good news? Okay, yes, please. 100 festivals have joined the Association of Independent Festivals Safer Spaces at Festivals campaign. That's a lot of festivals you just said there, Jen. I know, it's too many really in one sentence, but I've, I've committed to it. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's an initiative that was launched in 2017 in response to reports of sexual violence experienced predominantly by women at, I'll say it again, festivals. Mm -hmm. It's a big issue with almost half of female respondents to a 2018 survey by YouGov saying that they had faced unwanted sexual behaviour at music festivals, though those reports seldom make headlines. 
as part of the initiative, festivals including Reading, Leeds and Latitude have committed to what was described as a survivor-led approach and to deliver a safer environment for festival goers as well as performers and workers. And they'll also promote health guidance, including the principle of consent. Oh, hooray. This is all excellent news. It is. But while we're on the subject of festivals... Were we talking about festivals, Jen? We were talking about festivals. I've got a little bit of related bonus good news for you, which is that The Loop, the UK's first home office licensed drug checking service, launches in Bristol next month. The service was founded by Fiona Meesham, Chair in Criminology at the University of Liverpool, and it began trialling as a pop-up at festivals in 2016. The idea behind the service is to reduce drug-related harm by testing for unexpected substances, for example, in terms of the strength of the drugs or something they might have been cut with. So basically, if you're going to take drugs, know what you're taking. The Loop is an amazing idea, and I'm really glad that it's got a full-time home now. Banning things never works, but let's help Mm -hmm. people do it as safely as possible. Cracking. Exactly. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we celebrate women's wins as our own, but seemingly refuse to invest in them. Isn't that right, BBC? In what it terms a bid to find the next Fleabag, we all know about Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, right? Or the next Motherland, written by Holly Walsh, Sharon Horgan and Helen Serafinovich, starring a massive female cast and recent BAFTA bagger, the BBC is doubling the number of half-hour comedy pilots it makes and investing an extra £10 million in the genre. Yes, please. I fucking love laughing and I love brilliant women. This sounds like a cracking plan, Auntie. Mm-hmm. This particular raft of commissioning hasn't happened yet, but given Fleabag's final episode aired in 2019 and Motherland's been running for three series now, I'm sure the Beeb is already on the case. Let's have a little look at what's been commissioned for the next raft of new comedy programming. Well, Detectorist is back for a feature-length special, and mail art readers will already know how giddy kipper I am about the return of Mackenzie Crook's glorious sitcom. Comedian Marwan Rizan has had his comedy, Juice, commissioned for a six-part series. Jack Carroll and Tom Gregory have written Mobility, a new comedy short for BBC Three. And popular comedy shows Jerk by Tim Renko, The Cleaner, that's from Greg Davis, and Guilt, written by Neil Forsyth, will all be back for further series. These are all great series from talented men. It's men, isn't it? It is. It's all men. Bit fucking weird Mm. that literally none of the shows they've just announced are written by women. Do better, BBC. Do a shitload better. There's no funny women out there, Mick. That's probably why. Our biology makes it incredibly hard to laugh without wetting ourselves, so it's probably just not worth the risk. Yeah, we've got no um, cultural or intellectual capital either over the age of 28, especially after we've had children, so... does sound like what you're saying could be true, but you are a woman saying it, so I'm probably not going <laughs> to believe you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... it's Yeah. Fuck you, everyone. <laughs> Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Kayla Ellis. Hello, thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Kayla, your sitcom, it's Australian-based, but it's coming to Channel 4 this week, this very week. Spreadsheet, starring fantastic Catherine Parkinson. Are you excited? Oh my God, I'm so excited. I mean, I've been here visiting family and managed to be here just in time for the launch, although I am leaving on Saturday. So, you know, I'm ready to run away and hide just before everyone 
<laughs> but I'm so excited. Couldn't be happier. I'm so thrilled it's coming to Channel 4. It's just, it's the best news ever. Now, as an explanation, you are English, as we can tell. However, you do now live in Australia. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I emigrated there about 14 years ago. But yeah, I'm a Brit through and through. And uh, as is our lead character who's living over there. Perhaps we could start with, maybe you could do this bit. Give us an explanation of what spreadsheet is. Okay, so Spreadsheet is a show where Catherine plays Lauren, who's the protagonist of the story, and she is a divorced mum of two who's basically looking to redefine her life and balance her sex life, her family and her career. It poses the age-old question we all have, can women really have it all? And I mean, by all, that means sexual freedom as Mm. well as career, a family, and crucially, their sanity. So... That's really the crux of what the series explores with lots of hilarious results. And she, with the help of her best friend, Alex, who's also her work colleague, creates a spreadsheet to help her manage her dating life. Now, what she is looking for is very much sex and not love, which is actually, I would say, in life relatively common, but in art, really uncommon Particularly, I would say, amongst friends of mine who've got divorced. But as someone who's never married and has zero interest in a relationship, that's me. I find this really interesting because it actually says some stuff that isn't often said on telly. And that's not just that women can want something different that we're told, but that also... Men aren't 100% just interested in sex, which is something that we've been sold. I'm guessing that's the message you were trying to put across. That's exactly right. I think that, you know, first and foremost, uh, getting this out of the way, it is semi-autobiographical. So it comes from a very authentic, lived experience of mine where I just realised becoming single in my you know late 30s with children and a career and not wanting a relationship just really... I came up against quite a lot of surprise from friends and colleagues and uh, anyone and men included. And no one really understood why I wasn't looking for a relationship. As you said, you get that a lot. Mm. And it's just something that I found kind of a bit offensive, to be honest. And I thought we needed to redress because not everyone is looking for the same thing. And just because you're older and have kids and a career and why would we necessarily be wanting to get another relationship straight away? So 100% I wanted to portray that authentically and I know like you say I have lots of friends in the same predicament and men are portrayed as wanting you know string free commitment free sex and women hunting someone to look after them and you know settle Mm. down with and I just don't think it's true at all I think it's a bit of bollocks and (laughs) agreed there's time to show these different relationships that people have and it's just different stages in your life and you know that's just something that not everyone wants the same thing. And I think we should all just embrace that and, and respect each other for our choices rather than making these, you know, stupid assumptions about women needing a relationship or a man. To yeah, be uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, like I say, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything worse, to be honest. <laughs> but like you say, it's, it's, it's a generalisation. But in, uh, from, from my experience, I would say the idea that men are only interested in sex is also utter nonsense because they might not want a relationship but they still want other stuff they want reassurance they want someone to listen to their story about their boss or their dad or you know whatever's bothering them that week where do you think it comes from then 
I think that in my experience, you know, the men that I've met over this, the course of my new, you know, phase of life, the journey that I've been going on, I think there are certainly some men who are independent and quite happy to just, you know, have a one-dimensional relationship. But mm. I think a lot of men that I've known who've gone through divorce or relationship breakups, what they seem to miss, I'm massively generalising, but, you know, let you forgive me for that for now. Yeah, but what absolutely. I find is that a lot of them are missing that companionship and someone to listen to their problems and talk to and 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 a lot of women especially not always but especially if they're mothers you know are so busy looking after people already and Mm. their life and their job they don't necessarily miss that what they probably miss is intimacy and sex maybe and a bit of fun and excitement but a lot of the women I know who have gone through divorce or come out of relationships actually just need some space from men and what they want is maybe a bit of that but you know they don't need someone to necessarily argue over what they're going to watch on tv or you know yeah not not help them cook dinner or fight over domestic chores or whatever that might be so I don't know where that comes from but I think it sometimes has a lot to do with women's roles and you know and mothering and and all of that and if you've gone through and been looking after your partner or you know been in a slightly misbalanced relationship sometimes coming out of it the women are liberated and happier yeah (laughs) and men are less happy yeah And, and now have I mean, I know in the old days from like when I was younger, people, like my mum's friends who got divorced, there were those clubs that you could go to and meet other other divorced people. But, you know, apps have completely revolutionised the way that people can meet each other. So not only is the divorce rate up, but there's actually a, a way for women to access no strings sex. So surely this is going to become more common, I would think. I would think so. It's, yeah. it's incredibly easy. Yeah. And, and keeping it no strings and uncomplicated obviously is not easy. And life isn't uncomplicated and unmessy. So, you know, that's where the flaws and the, and the hilarity come in the series is that it sort of seems easy because men initially will respond and be like, yeah, great. No mm. strings. But then it just never stays that simple, does it? Also, what is happening? I've seen three episodes. Um, mm. I like it very much. But a lot of what is happening in there as well is other people's judgment on the way that Catherine Parkinson's character is behaving. How, if you say you've got some life experience here, how have you dealt with that? <laughs> I mean, quite bluntly. Honestly, <laughs> I don't really know what people think about me. And if it's friends, I think I know that it usually comes from a place of concern because maybe they can't either a, imagine how they would respond or they would, wouldn't approach it in the same way. Mm. You know, not everyone is like me or would do the same things or would get an app and just look for a lot of women I know do want another relationship after a divorce so and that's not saying that I don't it's more that immediately not necessarily you know there's enough going on so I think that I'm just usually I'm just quite frank and and you know and answer them any you know and answer any questions they might have but yeah I don't care what people think about me certainly I find it quite enjoyable to to be blunt and tell them exactly what I'm doing and yeah. maybe challenge them to think about it differently and, and, you know, debate it a bit. Like, why are you thinking I should need someone to take me out for a nice lunch? I kind of quite like to just go for lunch with my friends, you know? Yeah, 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 I agree. I think I, think I have a tendency to compartmentalise different things in different people. And I find that, you know, other people put all of that into one person, which to me seems... It's ludicrous, isn't it? Yeah. I agree. And I think you find as you yeah, as you get older and go through life a bit more, don't you, that you'd have friends who you do different things with. Yeah. And I think expecting one person in your life to be that is just bonkers. 
because of course it's not going to work. So, um, you know, relationships are great. And I think that if you have a good balanced one and you know what you're getting from that person, doesn't mean you don't need a friend to go to the theatre with or a friend to get pissed with or a friend to, you know, cry to or whatever. It's like one person is never going to be everything. No. And I think the failure that a lot of people have and the expectations we all put on a relationship. Yeah, agreed. Now, you yourself sent this script to Catherine Parkinson. You must have been absolutely delighted when she said yes. It was, yeah, it was actually just so shocking. I remember when we got the call and Darren, who's a direct, the director of the show, Darren and I, just rang each other immediately. And I remember jumping onto my kitchen counter. I was just, you know, so overjoyed because she was my first and really only choice. I hadn't thought through what would happen if she didn't want to do it yet. Um, and thankfully I didn't need to I was just yeah she's always I didn't write it necessarily with her in mind initially but as soon as I started thinking about casting I knew that she'd fit it so well and you know her subtlety and (laughs) a couple of years ago oh I say a couple of years ago it's probably about four years ago now because I've lost all concept of time I went to see her in a preview in Wales of Home I'm Darling And I interviewed her and when I was watching her on stage, I I just immediately knew that she had switched from being background, best friend, kooky, female co-worker to like leading lady. It was just so clear. But that said, I think this is the first thing I've seen her in on TV where she has been a leading lady. So well done for giving her something because she's absolutely terrific in this. She is terrific. And I really felt like she deserved as well a role where she got to explore that side of her a bit more. Because so often we as audiences, um, as creators, see women in, in, you know, quite two dimensional roles. And I think it's kind of great having this complex sexual mum, you know, these yeah. all these convictions that she's playing. And I think she really embraced that and loved kind of exploring that side of things, being able to look amazing have hot guys you know that she's dating who are 15 years younger than her I think it was probably a bit fun you know and an exciting kind of change to some of the typical roles for women in their 30s 40s 50s that Mm. we all get to see she's very game uh which (laughs) people will say although interestingly you tread a really fine line between what you show and what you don't show and I would say that in terms of what you speak about this is pretty graphic but actually, it presumably you, that you had to hit a mark of A, what people would show on telly, or B, what, what Catherine was prepared to do. Actually, a lot of it, the main decision Darren and I made about this, about nudity, which is, you know, what we're talking about here, is it's not necessary, is what we actually felt. Like, I don't need to see it. And I'm, you know, probably one of the core audience age demographics. And I just don't think that we, it wasn't, we don't need gratuitous nudity. You can definitely still do sex scenes that are funny without showing a lot of arse, basically. And also, you know, as a woman in her late 30s, 40s, for me, this is something that, again, I had to explain to a lot of people. When you're having casual sex with people, especially younger men, you don't always get undressed completely because let's be honest. You know, especially when you've had two kids or you whatever, you don't know these people. You can be intimate with someone semi clothed. Yeah. And I think that we wanted it to be authentic and kind of believable and nudity was just not necessary. So it wasn't even about having to ask Catherine or think about the time that this was going to be broadcast. Although obviously those are always concerns and you want to make sure everyone's comfortable. But um it just didn't need to happen and I think it works really well without it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, talking of nudity and sex and women on television. It seems to me that if you write this this sitcom, 
you know, you are going to come up against inevitable comparisons to Sex and the City. Is that a helpful thing or is that an unhelpful thing? I think it's just so different. I don't think it's unhelpful. Everyone knows Sex and the City. It might make, might make people tune in to watch it who maybe wouldn't necessarily with other descriptions. So I, I don't think it's unhelpful at all. It's very flattering, you know, in many ways. But it's so different. It's so vastly different um, that I think once you watch it, probably there's not that many comparisons. You know, she's quite chaotic and flawed and she's no Samantha. She's also not as, you know, polished as Carrie. And there isn't really, you can merge some characters and compare her, but she's her own kind of person and quite british so i think it's just yeah 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 well actually for me interestingly when i think about sex in the city which i have to say i'm not a huge fan of i never think about the sex bit i always think about the search for mr right bit which is the bit that annoys me the bit that says you know fundamentally underneath all of this what we're really looking for is the one um which Which, I couldn't agree more. It was definitely not something that I wanted to be, you know, a hook for the series. And it was never, you know, intended as you've seen three episodes, but, you know, and I won't give away any plot for anyone. But it's not about uh, it's not a rom-com where, you know, finally the one will walk through the door. That's not let's just it's a real show. It's about real people. You Mm -hmm. know, that that's what I was really definitely focusing on in writing it, that you want people to relate to it in, in all aspects. And it's not a fairy tale. Life's yeah. not a fairy tale. You know, there are great moments and there's joy and love in every part of, you know, life. But then there's also disappointment and chaos and heartbreak. So, yeah. you know, I wanted all of that in there. You get some great performances out of those little girls. Um, they were quite the fine, weren't they? Huge find. You know, I have two daughters myself, as does Catherine, which we bonded on. So our kids are the same age, Catherine's and mine. And the girls obviously were a very important casting of the show. And um, Myla, who plays um, the youngest daughter, she is that kid. And that's what we focused on as well, Darren and I, when we were casting was, you know, we've always, we've both worked with kids quite a lot in our careers, worked with um, child actors. And finding the kid who is authentically kind of that character is always the best outcome. And and Harper and Myla are definitely very talented, but also genuinely, you know, just suit the role really well. Yeah, yeah. It feels quite naturalistic, which I think is the important thing in when you put children on television. Yeah. yeah. And they're not just saying cute things, you know. No. Although this isn't technically a, a shared Australian-British television series, it sort of is, given that you are... English and Catherine is English and and actually I would say that it's the third sort of in that collaboration between Australia and Britain that we've had recently Sarah Kendall's Frayed and also Tim Minchin's Upright both of which are totally brilliant Australian comedy looks like it's in really good shape at the moment is that is that a fair thing to say it's a fair thing to say definitely yeah I think there's a real um surge in you know energy and excitement about these projects that have recently been made and I guess what you know the talent that's coming through the actors that we've had the privilege of meeting and and seeing coming through the ranks and you know I got to work with Reese Nicholson on Spreadsheet who's a stand-up comedian so but the stand-up scene and the comedians you know well Reese is acting in things as well it's big and it's exciting and yeah it's it's great to see these amazing shows that are happening and getting an international you know stage and exposure yeah before and upright I'm struggling to think of, of another Australian sitcom that's been over here for years and years and years and there, there probably is one because it always really annoys me when because I lived in Australia for a bit always really annoys me when people talk about Australian television and their first thing is to go to something like Neighbours 
And I'm like, <laughs> that would be like if someone came over here and the first thing they said was about like cash in the attic or something. Do you know what I mean? When there's such a great array of other things that you could be watching. So tell me, do you know, is there going to be a second series? Watch this space. Yeah, I'm certainly, you know, I've, there's a lot of material bubbling away under the surface. So I've been, I have been busy, you know, since we launched in Australia in October. You know, the brain doesn't stop the thinking at the story definitely hasn't come to a you know a natural end at the end of season one so watch this space in that regard but yeah I think it's looking pretty positive and although this is your first sitcom this isn't your first radio you two work in television all the time so have you got anything else on the horizon you could talk about well I am over here obviously visiting family but also talking to production companies about you know, new projects. So I am definitely still focused on getting something else up soon and other fairly semi-autobiographical projects that are coming from lived experience, you know, historically and recently. Nothing I can really name as yet, but yeah, I've got lots more on the horizon and I'm really excited to try and bridge this gap for me personally between the UK and Australia because it's a, it's a great privilege to have a show that's launching here and also hopefully be able to do more between the two countries mm. and come back and see family a bit more and work in the UK a bit more. Well, you've done a great job here. You've, I, I live in fear of technology in as much <laughs> as it's so easy to make mistakes. And as particularly if you're in some WhatsApp group and something's happening in that WhatsApp group and then you want to pull out of that WhatsApp group and send a message to someone individually that went, I can't believe they just said that or something. And it takes me about half an hour to do that because I'm like constantly checking which one am I replying to? Which one am I replying to? Which one am I replying to? And watching this has given me the fear about the amount of things that can go wrong when you think you're just sending something somewhere and it can end up going to a lot of places. So, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, it's actually, don't worry, I'm still living in the fear. Like, it gives me anxiety, you just mentioning that. And it's still happening, you know, because every new app that's invented works differently. I can't know how to use any of them. And I know the show's called Spreadsheet, but, you know, that's just a planner. I'm not a technology expert, and there's just so much that can go wrong, like you say, especially leading groups, sending things to classes instead of, you know, your personal friend. And, yeah, it's a, it's alarming. It's alarming. I think we should all just stop using technology. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Absolutely agreed. Yeah, because uh, not since Roman sent his sent his dad a picture of his cock have I nearly bothered <laughs> while watching television. <laughs> I know when I watched that, I watched that episode obviously after Spreadsheet had launched and I was just laughing. I'm like, we're all doing it. It's a yeah. nightmare. Yeah, and, it really you know, is. iCloud, I still don't know where any of my photos are. Uh, you know, I've got two children, three or four iPads, laptops. Some of the iPads travel, you know, to my ex-partner's house with the kids. Yeah. And I still don't know if clouds are sharing things. You know, where is the cloud and what's it doing? Where is everything? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'd be up at night worrying about that stuff. Kayla this has been absolutely brilliant thank you so much for your time you are very welcome it's been a pleasure I'm really so happy to uh, be bringing the show here and I'm it's starting on Wednesday 18th at 10pm on channel 4 so great tune in I'm joined on zoom by Paula Garfield artistic director of definitely theatre hello Paula Hello, good morning, Jen. It's uh, lovely to meet you. And thank you for inviting me to be interviewed. Thank you very much for joining me. Just to let the listeners know, the voice that you'll be hearing is Paula's BSL interpreter, Cathy Yeoman. So hello to you too, Cathy. Oh, thank you and hello. <laughs> so you're here today to talk to me about Definitely Theatre's 
20th anniversary season and first of all I wanted to ask you a little bit because you jointly set up the company in 2002. Can you tell me a little bit about Definitely to start off with and why you set it up? Okay thank you very much for the the question Jen. I'll try and keep it brief because I could go on for hours on this. Um, I was working as a freelance actor. Uh, I was working in theatre, a bit of television for about 10 years or so. And I suddenly realised, where are the deaf voices? Where are the deaf directors? Where's the theatre from a deaf perspective? And I think, you know, we as deaf people, we were working quite isolated in mainstream companies, just one deaf person. And I wanted to see a company where we could all be deaf or all be BSL users and all share that language and communication. And that wasn't there. The last kind of British theatre for the deaf, it closed in the 1980s, only set up in the, I think it was the late 60s. And I was kind of hoping that someone would set up, you know, another deaf theatre company and it it wasn't happening. And so absolutely, you're right. Uh, I co-founded it with uh, two wonderful colleagues back in 2002. And we then did small productions, devised productions with um, deaf history. It was about deaf perspective. And we were always full. We were selling out and we realised that there was demand from the deaf community, from interested hearing people, from theatre goers to see theatre in British Sign Language and English. And I should say definitely theatre is not just for deaf people. It's bilingual. All our productions are in BSL, spoken English and captions. So it's important. It is accessible for everybody, but it shows the deaf experience, deaf voices and shows who we are as deaf people. Every Day, which is the show that is uh, that we're going to talk about now, which is running as part of your 20th anniversary season, is written and directed by you, Paula, and it's showing at the New Diorama Theatre ahead of a national tour. Can you tell me what Every Day is about, please? Absolutely. So we've got 54 witches in this company, and all of these witches have experienced domestic abuse in some forms, whether that's personally or through family members. And they're sharing the ritual of the new moon, which gives them the, the, the desire to let go of the past, to share their experiences, to let go of the, the trauma of what they've been through and share what they've been through. Maybe I shouldn't share too much of the story, but anyway, let me try and summarise. But what it's about, really, is the play is based on research that I did. I actually interviewed a variety of deaf women and non-binary persons who have experienced domestic abuse. And that was incredibly powerful for me to sort of get their stories, hear from them, and then to create a play based on their experiences. But it's about empowering deaf women, deaf non-binary persons, to really have a voice and to break the taboo of domestic abuse and to talk about the subject. I think that's fine. And to raise awareness within the deaf community that this is actually happening. And I hope our audience members feel really empowered after seeing the show to start the discussion about domestic abuse. I think especially deaf women and deaf non-binary persons, that's, that's absolutely vital. Because, you know, we are a minority, absolutely. So we need to sort of be having these discussions and tackling this important issue. So I read an interesting fact um, about domestic abuse, which is that it's twice as likely 
to be perpetrated against deaf women as it is their hearing peers. Can you tell me a bit more about that and why did you choose such a sort of gritty or challenging subject, I guess, for what is a a celebration of your 20 years? Uh, Absolutely. I I appreciate uh, the question, uh, but absolutely, you're right. The statistic is is shocking. But I wanted to empower deaf women. I wanted to empower deaf non-binary persons and so really the really reason I wanted to put this is actually it's a prevalent issue through lockdown through COVID I think we saw in the mainstream news there was so much of an increase in the incidence of domestic abuse against hearing women and and non-binary persons and so we realized absolutely that it's doubly prevalent against deaf women and this play means a lot to me this play is absolutely, it's about sharing deaf voices and the deaf experience. And I can remember just sharing with you, Jen, in my early 20s, my de- my best friend shared with me that she was going through domestic abuse from her husband. And I couldn't believe it because, you know, her husband was charismatic, he was charming, he was popular, he was confident, everyone liked him, you know, and I, I, I saw, it took me a while to think, how can I help her? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do to help her. And I felt this story absolutely stayed with me. And this experience has has stayed with me. And I wanted to really shine a light on this topic. And I've spoken to a lot of survivors through my research. I've spoken to a lot of people and I've spoken to the charity that supports um, people who've been through this. And I think the deaf community is very small. And I think therefore perpetrators are known through other people and it's it's thinking, oh maybe we're in the same company maybe we're friends of friends maybe they're school friends and it's really hard to think can I report it what should I do how can I help the people so I think for me I wanted to open this discussion and show how we can support people who are going through this I suppose break the taboo break the stigma and start conversations about this vital topic and that's why I wanted to do it as part of our 20th anniversary and we have four women and non-binary persons in the company and the relationship between them is just wonderful it's friendship it's collaborative they're empowering each other they're supporting each other they are absolutely it's not that your life is over if you've been through this absolutely it's about going through that trauma and then coming out the other side yes I'm female Yes, I set up definitely theatre and it hasn't been, a, been an easy journey for me, Jen. You know, I, I think I've experienced a lot of discrimination because I'm a woman and I wanted to empower women. And that's why it's vital for me to show this piece that empowers uh, women uh, in the audience and also our company members. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about definitely in, in general and the situation for deaf actors and playwrights and directors, etc. working in, in the industry. I wondered... How do you think definitely has changed the landscape for deaf actors in in the UK? I think we have had a massive influence and that's not just me talking. And I didn't expect it, I have to say. You know, when I set it up back in 2002, we were a small company surviving project by project. There were probably, I don't know, a handful of deaf actors back then, maybe 10, you know, and hearing actors who could sign back then, a few, a handful. But now we have more, we're growing, you know, compared to 20 years ago, the growth, we see it, you know, and I think back then, 20 years ago, if I told people I wanted to be an actor, they'd be like, oh, you can't do that, it'd be just a hobby. But now, absolutely, it's possible to have a professional career 
And I think we have influenced and we see the new generation, we see children, we see young people in TV, film, theatre now, compared to 20 years ago. And I think, you know, we have given a lot of people their first opportunities. And I think people who have seen our early work back in 2002, and that has inspired them. I mean, one of our actors in Everyday, she told me that she saw Definitely Theatre's first production when she was young, and it inspired her, I think, when she was about, she said, uh, 18 or 19, to realise, I can be an actress, and now she's performing with us, which is a wonderful full circle for her. And I should share that 90% of deaf children have hearing parents, and so they don't have any maybe deaf friends, deaf role models, they don't know how to cope, what they're going to do, uh, how are they going to grow up, will they have opportunities, and so watching our productions, they sort of see deaf adult role models and think, well, they can, they'll be fine, you know, they'll absolutely, they can achieve whatever they want to achieve, and I think when I worked as a freelance actor, it was very difficult to get a regular job in theatre, difficult to get a regular income, but now directors are wanting to cast more deaf actors in their productions, which is wonderful to see, you know, we've got people at the RSC, people at the National, and, and a lot of actors have started with us at Definitely, uh, you know, as a strong foundation and now their careers are thriving, which is wonderful. Some do come back and they come back as audience members as well, which is wonderful. So we're very, we're very privileged. And I think uh, just to share with you and your audience, British Sign Language has been oppressed in the United Kingdom for, for many, many years. A lot of schools don't allow it uh, in their schools, which is, you know, heartbreaking for us. But, you know, having it on stage, centre stage in a theatre, it keeps sign language alive, absolutely. And that's vital for us. To follow on from what you're saying there, growing up, I don't remember seeing many deaf actors on TV. But recently, I suppose the obvious example is, of course, Rose Ailing Ellis on EastEnders. And there's a young man called Nadim Islam in Series 3 of The Bay. And I feel like deaf people are more visible on our TV screens now. But also that those characters, them being deaf is almost a plot point. Do you think the situation is improving or do you... It, surely the answer is that deaf actors are just playing characters on TV rather than specifically deaf characters, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely, Jen. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. We don't want to focus on just the deafness, do we? You know, we are humans. We are, you know, well-rounded people. Um, and to, you mentioned Rose Ailing Ellis, and she started with us at the Definitely oh. Youth Theatre when she was 17. Yeah. Um, Nadim Islam also uh, he performed with Definitely Theatre as well in our family shows I know he's done some other work before but he has worked for us early on in his career obviously William Grint is another wonderful example he's currently working for the RSC now but Nadia Nadaraja is another one who started with us and has obviously been on the globe stage being many many uh, productions there which is wonderful and Absolutely, we don't want to focus just on the broken hearing, which is what people, you know, want to focus on. And I did some really crap jobs, if I'm honest, um, before. I think I was in, what was I in? Was I in Casualty or one of those BBC dramas? And I made, I played a, a character who was 30, a deaf woman, 
who lived with her dad and her dad had a heart attack and I was kind of lost because I couldn't cope on my own and I wasn't happy with the script I'm going to share with you Jen but I had to do it you know because I'm an actor I needed money I needed to work I needed to live and I said to the writer this is not true to life you know deaf people can live independent lives and this was what 30 years ago probably I'm older now and I'm now seeing a change because I think there are more deaf writers I think there are more um and I think it's really important we've got Sophie Woolley we've got Charlie Swinburne who are prolific writers now writing for the BBC they're writing for EastEnders they're writing for Casualty they're writing for other stuff and I think we need deaf writers deaf voices and I think you know for theatre as well we need more deaf writers more deaf voices and it's great we've got the number of actors growing but I want to see more deaf directors you know I've worked at Devonly Theatre for the last odd 20 years now which is wonderful but I haven't had the opportunity to go out and work with other theatre companies and I think there's a bit of a fear about the language and 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 having that kind of you know synchronicity I suppose and I hope that attitude will change and we'll see more opportunities for deaf directors in the future and just touching on drama schools for a moment a lot aren't accessible for deaf people there's only the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland which does one uh, BA and BSL performance and that's only once every three years like one cohort but you know deaf people should have the choice to go to any drama school they want to and you know not have to go to Scotland if they're from you know somewhere in rural England. Maybe this is me being very naive I would have thought that that would be against some kind of equality or, or or discrimination laws no the laws are very woolly they they don't really say it explicitly and that's why we have to make our company work that's why we set up definitely theatre to really change people's perspectives to really you know change perspectives and 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 we're getting there as you mentioned earlier but we've still got a long way to go so I wanted to ask you about British Sign Language. The British Sign Language Bill received royal assent on April the 28th and it is now an act of Parliament. And what it does is it officially recognises BSL as a language of England, Wales and Scotland. I wondered from your perspective, as a deaf woman, as a deaf director, as a deaf actor, how important is that, do you think? I should also share with you, Jen, I'm actually a, a mum of two deaf daughters. We're in the 10% of deaf people who have deaf children. My partner is deaf as well. I have to confess, I don't have full 100% excitement about the BSL bill as yet. It's better than nothing. I'm happy it passed. Absolutely, it starts a conversation. But it, it does not give any concrete funding for things to be improved it does not say you must provide interpreters at the doctors or the school it doesn't say that I think it's a step forward absolutely and I suppose I have concerns if I'm honest it doesn't mean that we get I mean let me just touch on education for a moment you know deaf schools that allow BSL there's probably a handful now I'd say oh maybe I think there's 22 deaf schools that allow BSL now in the United Kingdom which is a very few number I mean in London there are two so the BSL bill passed brilliant but that doesn't mean we're going to set up more sign language provision for deaf children unfortunately Royal Assent wonderful and that means they're going to then set up a BSL council, I believe, or a panel who's going to then create an action plan 
that, that's then going to be given to different government departments like the DWP, um, the Department of Education, yeah, Culture, yeah. Media and Sport. Yeah, this is requests of what we need. So they're going to create this action plan. So you know, how long is that going to take, Jen? I'm sorry to be a bit pessimistic. <laughs> Will it be another five years before we actually see any action? I mean, yes, it's wonderful to see it pass, but it's a bit of... It's, it's a wee bit of a piece of paper at the moment. You know, our lives are not going to improve overnight, unfortunately. I want to see action rather than words, rather than this piece of paper. So I, a good step forward, yes. And raising awareness amongst British society, brilliant. But I want it to have more weight to it. What I want to see is in education for deaf children improve. It's a massive failure and it's still a failure now in 2022 and that needs more research, more funding, more support and I hope the BSL Act will action on that. I should say I left school when I was 17 and my reading age was that of an eight-year-old and you know I, I don't mind sharing that fact and I know people get shocked by it but that's not unusual. It's actually very common and it's still happening now because there's too much focus on you know being taught how to speak in an oral education method and how to say the words rather than what the words actually mean. And so I teach my two deaf daughters BSL from birth. They've been with me all the time since birth. They have language. They have BSL. They have language first. And now they're written and reading English level is actually two years above their peers right now. Because they had BSL, I have a 17-year-old daughter. She's doing English as an A-level right now. She's deaf, profoundly deaf, born deaf, had BSL from birth. And I compare her to myself. I didn't have BSL from birth. I was forced to learn how to say words, not words mean. I feel I was language deprived. We call it language deprivation. And I know that's a bit of a shocking phrase but I think it's an important phrase to use and it's still happening. It's still happening. And that's why I'm a very passionate advocate that theatre in BSL really keeps British Sign Language alive. It keeps the discussion open. It keeps audiences seeing it and talking about it. And that's vital. I mean, I think, you know, for me, I went through terrible depression before I discovered theatre. I had dyslexia as well and I really felt like a failure. And I discovered theatre and I could express myself this way. And it changed my life. Absolutely. It saved my life, to be fair. And I think that's the same for many, many other people as well. And that's why we have the Definitely Youth Theatre that we set up in 2011, because we want young deaf people to have a safe space to find their identities and to share language together. Do you have any advice for any of our listeners, young or old, but I think particularly children who are deaf, who are wanting to get into the theatre, what they can do, any sort of avenues they can take? Because I imagine there are quite a lot of barriers to participation unless, of course, they go specifically to a company such such as yourselves. Oh, Jen, I would love to give you advice or work to pay. It's so hard. Definitely theatres based in London. We have a definitely youth theatre, which is from 14-year-olds to 21-year-olds. And we have people that come from all over the UK to come to London for weekend workshops. We're usually from autumn, so follow their school year, so from September onwards. And then they perform usually in February half term and they do a performance. Uh, We also have summer school, like one week workshops in August. That's always the best part. 
people coming together. It's residential, it's fun. And this year we've got very exciting activities, which I can't share with you yet. But if any of your listeners maybe have deaf children or um, siblings or whatever, please do follow us on social media. Please do join our mailing list. But it is very hard depending on where you live. I wish I had better advice. Thank you so much for talking to me. Every day starts at the new Diorama on May 16th until the 11th of June before a national tour. And you can find out more information at definitelytheatre.co.uk. You mentioned social media. Where can we follow you on social media? We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Absolutely, at Definitely Theatre. It's all there, all on the website. So please do follow us. Thank you so much for inviting me to be interviewed. Uh, I hope your listeners found it uh, interesting. Thank you to my interpreter as well. I suppose my final message to your listeners would be if, you, if you're if you ever chatting with a deaf person, don't be scared of us. We won't bite you. You know, have a just try and have a chat with us, you know, a bit of gesture, write things down, use your phone, you know, have a look on YouTube for a bit of sign language. We're, we're, we're human just like you. If you want to learn BSL, go for it. If you have a deaf child, you know, if you're not sure, please meet some deaf adults. Please talk to people who have lived experience rather than just relying on medical professionals and audiologists. I think it's vital to get lived experience from people who've been there and then they can give you advice. Thank you very much. Paula, thank you so much and good luck with the 20th anniversary season and congratulations. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we hit a cheeky drop shot at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. I am talking, of course, about the French Open, obviously, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. I want to start by talking about a story which broke on Monday evening, which concerns men's sport predominantly, but it is a great example of sport is for everybody. That story is regarding Jake Daniels, a 17-year-old forward for the championship side Blackpool FC, and his decision to come out as gay. It makes him the first openly gay player in the top four leagues of English football since Justin Fashionu came out over 30 30 years ago. In an interview on Monday, Daniel said he wanted to be himself and that lying all the time isn't what I've wanted to do and it has been a struggle. It's one of those very rare occasions when football actually gives you a sense of optimism about the world. I feel very strongly that no one should have to fly the flag for anyone, be that with regards to gender, race, sexuality, whatever. But it can make a huge difference to the lives of others if they do. It shouldn't be, but it is a really big deal. And I think at 17, to have the strength of character to do that... What a fucking brilliant kid. I hope all the people who clearly feel the same way as I do about this from the outpouring of support on social media will protect him from the people who maybe don't share that. Right, more great football news. Obviously, it's Emma Hayes related, but I'm not going to dwell on it for too long because otherwise we're basically going to have to rename this section Jen Talks About Emma Hayes again. Congratulations to Chelsea women who beat Manchester City 3-2 in extra time to retain the FA Cup title and win the double. Sam Kerr scored the winning goal in the 99th minute in front of a record women's FA Cup final crowd of 49,094. She also scored in the 33rd minute while Erin Cuthbert found the net in the 63rd. Lauren Hemp and Hayley Razzo were City's goal scorers. Okay, on to tennis. 
First of all, we wish our very best to former British number one, Laura Robson, who has retired from the sport aged 28. It's a while since we heard much from Robson, who has been plagued by injury in recent years. But at the height of her game, she won an Olympic silver medal in the mixed doubles with Andy Murray in 2012, as well as making the fourth round of the US Open in the same year and Wimbledon the year after. Her highest ever ranking was 27, which is not too shabby at all. A very hard decision for her to make, I'm sure. Let's look forward to the French Open. Qualifying is now underway, so the main draws were not yet available at the time of recording, but these start on Sunday, May the 22nd. There has been a lot of churn in the women's rankings lately and perhaps some names that people who haven't been following closely won't recognise in the top 20. So they will be seeded, not that that tends to mean very much in the women's draw as it is so unpredictable. The likes of Emma Raducanu, Victoria Azarenka, Simona Halep, as well as Coco Goff and Leila Fernandez, who you may remember Raducanu beat in last year's US Open final. We still don't know for sure that Raducanu will play. She's recently been struggling with a back problem and there has been quite a lot of comings and goings in her coaching staff, which might be a sign that all isn't as well as it could be. We should see a return from Naomi Osaka, currently ranked 38th, though we anticipate still no Serena Williams. She's been out of action since picking up an injury in a super slippery Wimbledon last year. Her long-term coach, Patrick Moritoglu, is currently working with Halep, so it seems highly unlikely that Williams would compete. Still, maybe we'll see her at Wimbledon this year, fingers crossed. Some of those names I said you might not recognise in the top 10. Barbara Krychikova, Paula Badosa and Ons Jabeur, they've all been having a great season thus far. But runaway world number one is still Iga Sviantek, who I've spoken about before on this podcast. She's leading the WTA rankings by over 2,000 points currently, which is a pretty massive margin. And she is on an incredible run, having picked up five titles so far this season with a winning streak of 28 matches. She is actually only the second player ever to have won four or more WTA 1000 titles in a single season. Ovs Serena is the other player. She's pretty good on clay and has been, as I say, cleaning up just lately. Plus, she has won the French Open before back in 2020 as a 19-year-old. I don't want to make a prediction because, well, my predictions have historically been crap but the stats speak for themselves i'm looking forward to seeing her play that's all for me this week and i'll be back next time with more women's sport welcome to rated or dated hannah what film that we watched this week immediately made me want to watch all of tommy lee jones's back catalogue yes even volcano (laughs) This week, we watched No Country for Old Men, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and first shown at the Cannes Film Festival this week in 2007. It's pretty faithfully adapted from the novel by top five living American novelist Cormac McCarthy, and is generally regarded to be a top one Cohen Brothers film. (laughs) Why? Well, however you measure success, No Country for Old Men is arguably the brothers' most successful film. It was the first time reviews and box office lined up, all their previous efforts having been critically lauded box office duds or vice versa. No Country for Old Men took $171.6 million at the box office, making it the duo's most financially successful film until it was overtaken by True Grit, which they made in 2010, having discovered here that they could also make really fucking great westerns. 
there's no point trying to keep our powder dry. <laughs> Both Mickey and I have actively said on the podcast before that we love this film. No Country for Old Men won four Oscars, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. It also won three BAFTAs, including Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. Two Golden Globes, including Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. And two SAG Awards, including Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. In many ways, No Country for Old Men is a lot like other Coen Brothers films, notably Fargo and Raising Arizona. Mm. And in a lot of ways, it's totally different to anything they've ever done before. One example being that it's devoid of music. No one sings, no one turns a radio on, which certainly amps up the tension. And in a very un-Coen Brothers move, no character suffers from verbal diarrhoea. In fact, quite the opposite. It's got really stripped-back dialogue with large chunks taking place in total silence. The neo-Western also reeks, in a good way, of classic 60s Westerns, including a devotion to extreme violence that Sam Peckinpah would be proud of, and some Anthony Mann-style visuals perhaps epitomised by that incredible shot when Sheriff Bell stands in the motel doorway and casts a double gunfighter shadow on the wall. There's also more than a bit of Hitchcock in that scene and numerous others. In fact, I don't think motels have seemed quite as terrifying as they do here since Psycho. Mm -hmm. The film tells the story of three men. The aforementioned Sheriff Bell, to whom the title refers, is played by Tommy Lee Jones. It's 1980, and as he approaches retirement, he's starting to wonder if he's cut out for this work anymore. If there was a soundtrack, he'd be accompanied by Labby Sifri's I Don't Know What Happened to the Kids Today. But things are about to get worse for him because into his life comes the other two men. Anton Chigurh, a hitman with a shit haircut, obs, and <laughs> zero moral compass, obs. And he's hunting for a case containing $2 million that vanished after a drug deal went bad. Chigurh, FYI, is played by Javier Bardem. Someone give that guy an award. <laughs> The case is now in the custody of Llewellyn Moss, who stumbled across the carnage by accident and made a rash decision that will likely ruin his life. He is played by a gloriously be-shirted, be-hatted and be-booted Josh Brolin. Calm yourself down, woman. (laughs) And if you're thinking that sounds like a banging cast, hold up, because there's more, (laughs) with some proper character acting talent taking even quite minor roles. Kelly MacDonald is Llewellyn's wife, Carla Jean, and Beth Grant plays his mother-in-law. Woody Harrelson is a second hitman sent to track down the first by an unnamed businessman played by Stephen Root. When that scene happens, when Woody Harrelson is talking to Stephen Root, I said out loud, oh God, I hope Hannah's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Double Deadwood alum Garrett Dillahunt plays Sheriff Bell's second in command And there's even a teenage Caleb Landry-Jones as one of the youngsters who talked to Shigure after the crash. That's two films in almost as many days, Jen, that you and I have watched that's had both Caleb Jones and Stephen Root in it. And a lot of violence. So I'm expecting you to have views on this. So, question. I know you've both seen this before. So I was wondering what it was that brought the boys to the yard for you as it was. Was it the Coen brothers? Was it Tommy Lee Jones? Was it Cormac McCarthy? Was it a combination of them all? Was it Josh Brolin's face? Ah. Uh, it wasn't an option, well. but it should have been an option. It should have been an option, yeah. Uh, Cohen Brothers, for me. 
I don't think anything in particular. I saw, I've seen it before on a flight. Boredom. Well, no, I watched it because it was obviously at the time that I watched it. It was like you know, it was when it was winning a couple of awards. Um, <laughs> so I was like, well, I'll check that out. It's meant to be quite good, and it was. But I do. I think they do show slightly sanitised versions of things on flights, mm. even when they do have like the correct rating. Them. So yeah. it was what, like ten minutes long? Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it was still it was still violent, but I think they might have taken like the the worst bits out of it because there are some pretty horrible bits in mm. it, and um, I did spend a fair amount of time under a blanket listening. So, but it is it's it's really good. I wouldn't say I'm not like a you know, I don't I don't know the Coen Brothers films like you two do, so I wouldn't say that I am, like, a massive fan. Not that I'm not a fan, I just don't know them as well as you do. But I think it has that thing that they seem to do very well. It's just this, like, very, very dark, very, very dry kind of humour, like, moments that are just a bit fucking ridiculous, but... Brilliant. Chef's kiss. Um, yeah. I have to let you know something funny that happened. So when I said to Gary that we were, I was watching No Country for Old Men, he said, oh, I'd like to watch that with you. I've not seen it for ages. And I was like, okay, great. We get about 10 minutes in and he went, oh, I haven't seen this film before at all. He thought we were going to watch A Few Good Men. And so, <laughs> very he can't vibe. handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. My mum did something similar. I don't know what she thought it was we were watching. It wasn't that. But she was like, oh, yeah, no, I like that film. And then we watched it and she said, I don't think I want to watch this. It's <laughs> like, you said you watched it before, mum. She was like, I was thinking of something else. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, so's mum. So interestingly, universally praised though this film was, the criticisms that I have heard about it oh. are largely to do with the ending that Josh Brolin has an off-screen death which people found a very anticlimactic and that Shagir essentially gets away which as well has a real season two of the wire vibe about it <laughs> of just like oh Christ like everything's just going to go back to normal but I actually think that kind of ties in with the whole like I say I don't know what's happened to the kids today vibe that's going on because this is set in 1980 do you know what I mean? It's not like we suddenly got better. Every generation thinks that the next one is worse in some way than they are. I don't think it matters that he gets away with it. I think it's... I mean, obviously, he's not nice, and you'd, you'd hope in, in the real world he wouldn't get away with it. But I don't think it matters. Okay, and what about the, what about the other thing I said, Jen, the rug pull, really, of Brolin being killed off-screen when you're expecting another showdown or a different showdown? I didn't want him to die, so that for me is yeah. I'd agree with that. I don't really the. I guess the off-camera death. Yeah, no, I probably would agree with that. It does feel a bit anticlimactic in that sense, but then at the same time, I wanted him to be okay. So that would probably be the sadder point for me that he wasn't okay. But as soon as he takes his eye off the ball, right, he's distracted by a pretty lady and maybe the temptation of beer, and you're like, oh, no, this isn't a guy you can take your eye off the ball from, mm. and you know that, you know that. and you. But it's yourself... not even him that gets him, though, is it? It's the Mexicans. Mm. But exactly, but he's he's 
sort of dropped his concentration at a time when he shouldn't at all. And I actually think Shago would get away with it. He's sold to us as this real enigma, this ghost is how I think... This Leonard Smalls. This Leonard Smalls. So he would get away with it because he's really clever. That's why he's so good at what he does, because he just disappears. He's so sinister. He's so sinister. He's really sinister. That conversation with the petrol shop attendant is just like goosebumps. It's just so sinister. Where he makes him flip the coin, which obviously is his, like, thing. But, like, the first time you see him do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that conversation. I mean, I to be honest, he's sinister sooner. when it, Just when he stands up and puts his legs through the fucking handcuffs. It's, oh, yeah. Terrifying. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not saying that's when yeah. he gets sinister. I just think yeah. that that conversation in particular to me is really, like, goosebumps. The tension there is really ratcheted. But, yeah, everything about him, like, from the moment we sort of see him escape the handcuffs and you just see it in the background, it's almost shadowy, and you're like, oh, he's... He's basically like a ninch away from making this a horror movie mm. instead of a, a Western and a thriller, right? Because he is so fucking scary. Yeah, he's like a corpse that sits up in that moment. Uh, yeah. This is probably a very, very um, shallow thing to say, but I do think it's genius that they that he's so scary and yet he has such a shit haircut. Well, that's the Coen <laughs> Brothers. Someone always has a shit haircut in a Coen Brothers film. And it's, it's also Javier Bardem, who also always has a shit haircut in a film. That's yeah. true. Yeah. That is very true. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the more sort of Coen Brothers touches in it from that sense, because it's definitely nowhere near as funny as most of their films. Mm. No. Agreed. Um, in fact, it's probably the, and I'm, this isn't a complaint, but it's probably the least, no, it's not the least funny. Miller's Crossing is, I think, I think the Lady Killers is probably the least funny, and that was actually trying it's to be funny. supposed to be a comedy. But yeah. Even when, like, Woody Harrison's talking to Stephen Root, and he's dispatched to, like, track down Secure. And even though Woody Harrelson, you know nothing about him, and he could be the world's greatest killer, you immediately just know he's out of his depth. Mm-hmm. You just know because you've seen what he's got to face, which is this just terrifying man. But, because, you know, we, it is well noted on this podcast that I am a windy wuss. We're all kind of a little bit windy wussy about mm. horror movies, but, you know, particularly me and Jen. And Jen, I'm, I can take a bit more violence and gore, but I know you're not into, not into that at all. But it's so good. The story is so good. The story is so gripping. The performances are so gripping. And, and it's actually, it's quite gently paced. It takes its time, I think. Mm even though quite a lot happens, and I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's such a great film. Yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of just men. It is a lot Maybe of men. we can make that point um, in a bit. Men just thinking. There's an awful lot of men just looking at something, which is actually quite hard to do, I, I, I've been led to believe as an actor, because you've got to do something, or people feel the need to do something. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to look engaged in, like, in some way. They build the tension very well. Yeah, they totally. I have a question for you both. Having watched Fargo, do you think the scene where Tommy Lee Jones and Gareth Dillahunt find all the bodies is a homage to Fargo? I mean, it happens. I mean, and it's really Mm. faithfully adapted from the book. But yes, it is. It's It's totally Fargo. And that, that theme of, you know, I just don't understand this level of violence is, is what Fargo is totally about, isn't it? Yeah. 
Should we talk about the women in the film? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love Kelly MacDonald and I think she's fantastic in this. And Beth Grant, who isn't in it much, is absolutely mm. amazing in it, I think. But that is basically, oh, Tommy Lee Jones has a wife. Um, that's basically the extent of the women in it. Beth Grant, you probably recognise uh, Jen from Little Miss Sunshine. She's the one that won't let them register. Because oh. all the other girls turned up on time. She is oh. always playing, she plays a type. She absolutely definitely yeah. plays a sort of whingy older woman type. She's also in Donnie Darko. She's the one that's obsessed with uh, what they're teaching in class. But well, she comes in and she's she's such a moment of lightness, even though all yeah. she's doing is complain and like yeah. windbag around. But she's she's funny. Yeah. Yeah, she is the comic relief in it. Yeah. Now, much as this film does contain a scene with Woody Harrison and, and Stephen Root, um, <laughs> it's not my favourite. I think the the absolute banger is so Western, so old school. The scene that just absolutely knocks your socks off is the scene where he goes to see his uncle Ellis, who is played by Barry Corbin. So that makes this a lonesome dove. If you are in any way Western geeky, a lonesome dove reunion. And he does the, you know what's going on with the world and his uncle points out to him that the world has always been this way but in Mm -hmm. the most the dialogue is so beautifully lyrical it is absolute chef's kiss i the bit where he says where he describes his cats and says some of them are half wild and some of them are just outlaws i thought yeah i'm having that because it (laughs) kind of describes my pair and he makes a fresh pot of coffee at least once a week that's excellent uh it reminded me whether he needs to or not yeah, it reminded me, oddly, of the end of The Straight Story as well. Yeah, yes. Anyway, so do you have a favourite a moment in it? I love the scene that you mentioned earlier, Hannah, where Tommy Lee Jones is, he's sort of really made himself go back. He doesn't want to be a cop anymore. He knows he's putting himself in danger, but he also knows that Chigurh return will return to the scene of a crime. That's what he's done before. He'll probably do it again. And he really like braces himself and G's himself up to go into the motel room. And part of you is going, don't go in there, don't go in there. And he does. And that silhouette and the shadows and the way it plays out is so beautiful and so tense. Uh, I love that scene. I think it's great. I like... Um because I'm a basic bitch, I like the bit where George Brolin's in a wet shirt. <laughs> no, with the Mariachi band, where he's uh, where he's bleeding profusely and he's on the floor, and uh, and there's he wakes up and there's the band there singing the little song, and they're like, <laughs> and then he like sort of opens his shirt and they see like how much blood is on him. <laughs> okay, medical. And they stop singing. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah, at one point, Woody Harrelson is telling. Llewellyn, Joss Brolin's character, that Shigur has principles of a kind, right? Mm. Mm. And I, I don't know what they are. I don't know what his murderer's code is because I think when he kills Kelly McDonald's character, he shows that he has absolutely no principles at all. So I wondered if either of you had an answer to that. Well, he explains it in that weird way is that I basically gave my word to your dead husband that I would kill you. Which is ridiculous because, mm. you know, Josh Brolin wouldn't want him to hold on to his word there. So I think that the code is he does what he says he's going to do. But also it's all about like luck, isn't it? And predestination and whether they're to exist. 
because she says the queen doesn't have a say. Yeah, I yeah. always pick tails, and it made me think twice watching this film that maybe that would be a bad move. Maybe I should start always picking <laughs> heads. But there is like a sort of the the idea that, and that's what she says to him. You know, basically, you know, you're doing this. You know, you are making a choice. Mm. So maybe his code is that he just he does what he thinks should be done yeah. or something. I took it to mean like he sees stuff through. Basically, like it's it's almost like a point of honor for him to just see things through to their conclusion. So, yeah, which is a very peck and power thing. That's basically what bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia's about. If you say you're going to do something, do it despite the ongoing cost to you. Yeah, and that also that somehow he has built this reputation for himself, and he is this scary motherfucker, and like it would be a cost to his reputation almost to not just fucking kill everyone yeah so know. the only thing That's he cares kind of... about is his reputation i just i don't even know yeah i don't know because it doesn't really come across like he cares about very much does it but it's like this is sort of the path he's chosen and he's gonna fucking do it and he's gonna do it in the scariest possible way he can. i don't know does that make sense kind of i mean it would to him yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want it to make sense to me <laughs> because yeah, no, then maybe yeah. I'll have to get myself some little air blasting thing. I just want to say also that Josh Brolin, although like I do, I do think he's hot. Um, I think he's a really good actor. I I do think you know I've seen him in a few things that I, I really like him in, and um, I don't know. I sort of wish he did more stuff. Really, I don't. I feel he... like he's not about as much as he could be. He's he's tended to luck out in as much as he's been really good in films in which someone else was like way better. So he kind of gets sidelined a bit. Like mm. when people talk about No Country for Old Men, they always go to Javier Bardem. Josh Brolin's fantastic in Milk. It's just Sean yes. Penn is better. Uh, going back at the top, I said about Cormac McCarthy. No Country for Old Men is a really good book, but... If anybody's not read a Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian, which is like probably like for me, like top 10 book that I've ever read, is a great place to start. And apparently unfilmable, which is maybe a little bit disappointing. I always thought that was catnip, catnip for some sort of production company somewhere. Well, it is, but that's kind of the... That's kind of the problem everybody thinks. Oh, I know, I know how I could do this differently. And then they, they always end up sort of dying, but... The other controversial thing I have to say is this film is so amazing, but it says something about 2007 that this wasn't the, even the best Western of 2007. That was definitely the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. But, you know, if someone's not got so eight and a half hours... I forward to be making you watch that in <laughs> September. So, on that note, rated or dated? Rated. Rated. Yeah, rated. Who's next? It's me. It's me. It's a very, very giddy entry on this on the schedule. I've noticed. Well, wouldn't you know it? Sister Act is thirty. <laughs> I feel like there's no way you're keeping your powder dry, Jen. <laughs> I don't think I've ever Just seen saying. Sister Act. Well, Hannah, oh. it's about time. Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 